Welcome back to another season of Unraveling Science, the podcast where I chat to leading scientific researchers about the stories that have not only shaped the science, but also the scientist. This season, we have so much to cover from dermatology to astronomy, nutrition to immunology, and so much more. So if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. This season, I'm so delighted again to be sponsored by the wonderful Irish company, Biosciences Limited. Biosciences are now part of the Thermo Fisher Scientific Group, and you can check out what they supply at thermofisher.com. I'm so grateful to them for continuing to sponsor this podcast. Associate Professor Tara McMurrow is my guest on the podcast today. So Tara is the Associate Dean of Science in UCD and her research focuses on toxicology and the molecular mechanisms underlying kidney damage and disease, including tumour biology and fibrosis. And in 2016, my graduating class of biomedical science in UCD voted Tara as Teacher of the Year. And so it's a great honour for me to sit down and chat to you today, Tara. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much, Megan. And it is a fabulous uh, initiative and I've listened to some of them. I will admit I haven't listened to all of them, but they've been super. So well done. And and I also should thank you again for uh, voting me Teacher of the Year in 2016. It was a great privilege and it was a lovely um, celebration as well, where we all went to the O'Reilly Hall and received our awards. So that was fabulous. A long time ago, it seems that we've been on campus together. I know, I know. It's, that was It was in June. It's always held in the summer, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was lovely weather as well. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a really nice experience for me. And actually, I, I still have it in my office <laughs> uh, behind me. So it, it is mad to think that's four years ago as well at the same time. But yeah, so Tara, I suppose I really want to get a sense and go back to kind of what you were like as a child or in school. And were you always interested in science or were there other hobbies or aspirations in mind at that time? Yes. So and I'm from Galway. So I went to school and university in Galway. I did always have an interest in science. Now, no one from my mum's side went to college. Um, so I was the first person on her side. And then on my dad's side, uh, several of my aunts had trained as nurses. And dad was a brilliant mathematician, but he didn't want to go to college. So he never went much to his parents' uh, dismay and disappointment. They were very upset. But he he became self-taught in computer science. So he set up the computing for Musgraves way back when, many years ago. So there was always this interest in science or maths in particular in the house. Uh, although I used to hate asking him for help with my maths homework because he just was much better than me. <laughs> yeah, so I would have been very quiet in, in primary and secondary I did have some great teachers in science and secondary school. There was um, a very glamorous biology teacher, Miss Regan, and I, she used to wear fabulous clothes, Megan. I was like, wow, this is what science teachers really look like. Um, and she was super and she really encouraged our interest in science during secondary school. Uh, my career guidance teacher suggested that I do engineering instead of science. And I did consider it for about, you know, five seconds. But I just always felt with engineering, it was creating something. Whereas with science, it was trying to understand how things work, how the cells work or whatever. And I just thought I was much more interested in trying to develop my understanding how things work rather than to, to build something or to create something. So I ended up in science in UCG or NUI Galway. 
So I loved physics actually in first year, really enjoyed it and did consider pursuing a degree in physics, but I was tempted by the dark side of microbiology, which is very dark these days. (laughs) Uh, So I decided to, I continued on with microbiology and biochemistry and genetics uh, through my degree. And then I specialized in microbiology and genetics. But my fourth year project was actually more in molecular biology. So there was a lot of molecular biology research going on in the Department of Microbiology in Galway because there wasn't really a separate molecular biology stream within university at the time. So this was in the 90s. So I'm very old. (laughs) Um, We got one of the first PCR machines in the lab. And I remember being told how they had when they were developing the process, how, you know, you have to change the temperature to uh, denature the DNA and and anneal the primer. So it has to go from zero degrees, 37 degrees. So they used to do this manually. So you'd have the tube in three different water baths to actually do the the PCR. So uh, we were very lucky to get one of the first PCR machines. and, And that really developed my interest in molecular biology, as opposed to specifically microbiology. So my fourth year project was identifying repeat sequences in, um, we used uh, Atlantic salmon as our model. It was very easily accessible on the west coast of Ireland. Mm. But I must say I was sick of eating salmon by the end of my project. We used to get a lot of free salmon at the time. It's a terrible complaint. So I did my fourth year project with Professor Frank Gannon. And then um, he offered me a PhD position in his group. So I stayed on with Frank to do my PhD. And about halfway through my PhD, he left to take over as director of EMBO, the European Molecular Biology Organization in Germany. So that was a little disconcerting. Um, But we were very lucky. We had uh, some brilliant postdoctoral fellows in our lab who helped us continue on the research and complete our PhDs. And the Internet was really taking off at that time as well. So email was coming on board and we're so used to using it now. But it's hard to believe that, you know, 30 years ago, it was really in the infancy. Um, So that was hugely beneficial because I used to email Frank, you know, drafts of my thesis for him to correct. And and just being able to look up publications online was amazing. So my, my PhD then focused on looking at the genes again in Atlantic salmon. So it was actually an EU project where they were trying to identify genes that could, if they expressed more of the, the protein from the gene, they could increase the yield of the Atlantic salmon um, in Ireland. So it was they were looking for growth performance genes or size or changes in, you know, when Atlantic salmon undergo this change to juvenile Atlantic salmon and they go back up the, the streams to mate. So I was uh, looking at globin genes. In fish, they have uh, many more globin genes so linked to our blood to try and identify genes that might be useful or beneficial again in increasing the size of the salmon or their longevity um, as well. And uh, so we identified numerous uh, different globin genes. So that was my experience of science in Galway. Yeah, so talk to me a little bit then about, you know, finishing up your PhD and looking for a postdoc and how you ultimately ended up in the Netherlands. 
there really weren't any jobs at the time. So this was uh, mid late nineties and it was, well, what do I do next? Now it's amazing. There are so many opportunities for PhD students when they graduate, you have the opportunity to maybe go into industry or to continue research and, and get postdoctoral positions. But at the time it was, uh, the economy was quite poor in Ireland. Your only options were to go abroad. And I went to a meeting in Seattle, the last year of my PhD, and I was offered a couple of postdoctoral positions uh, in Canada and also in the US, and also one with Professor Frank Rosfeld, who had been based in London, but had moved back. He's Dutch, so he had moved back to Rotterdam in the Netherlands. He offered me a PhD position as well. So it was very much, okay, do I go to the US or do I stay in Europe? So I had a boyfriend uh, who was based in Ireland and was working in Ireland. And we'd met through science in UCG, actually, but he had gone into um, the bank. I thought, okay, it's a lot cheaper flying from the Netherlands to uh, Ireland and a lot closer. So I was persuaded to go to the Netherlands instead. And um, they were working on global genes in diseases at the time. I moved to Rotterdam to the Department of Cell Biology and Genetics. And um, that was an amazing experience. So I was there for three years and I had uh, an EU postdoctoral fellowship. And I just made some amazing friends during that time because Frank's lab was very international. And because he was so well known in the field, he attracted people from all over Europe, the US, Canada, as well as obviously having a significant number of Dutch people uh, in the group as well. But the, the main language was English. So I uh, learned how to make transgenic animals, uh, learned how to do some amazing techniques. But what I found fascinating uh, was that I come from a lab where we bought in our reagents, you know, ready-made reagents for the lab, for example, plasma purification kits. And I would, was very used to that. And then I went to the Netherlands and they had this system where every lab took every week or whatever, once a month would create all of the reagents for the whole department. So if you got it wrong, you, you were in serious trouble because you affected the research of about 200 people people in the department. So it was high stakes. And I was, uh, well, terrified initially, but it was a very good learning experience. And I was really surprised as well that, you know, these labs weren't using the kits that were available from places like biosciences or whatever, mm -hmm. that they were generating all of the components themselves. And then there were other tips that we used to have a cell culture technician, which was fantastic. So she used to grow our cells for us. So it was very strange. Some things I felt they were very behind in and then other areas they were much more advanced and supported than we were. So we did some really cool research there and I learned an awful lot. Of, and then I considered staying on longer. They offered me an extension to my contract, but I got engaged to my boyfriend. So it's, <laughs> good, good. So it's worthwhile. <laughs> uh, and uh, he was based in Dublin and I started looking for positions back in Dublin. 
and I almost went to Trinity. Again, when I came back, I hadn't even considered looking at lecturing positions. And I think a lot of females suffer and well, a lot of scientists suffer from imposter syndrome. And definitely it was pointed out to me, well, why didn't you apply for some lecturing positions? And I just hadn't even thought about it. So it's something definitely I would like to advise younger, particularly female scientists, if you are coming back to Ireland, then don't undersell yourself, you know, do aim high. Uh, It's definitely worth it. Uh, So I was offered a position in uh, the Department of Zoology, actually in Trinity. And then I was offered a position in the Department of Medical Microbiology in UCD. And UCD offered me more money. <laughs> that was that was uh, one of the main reasons, Megan, uh, why I came to UCD. And I've been here for 20 years now, so a long time. But I really liked the project. Well, it was industrially linked, uh, which always did uh, interest me. So it was a new area of research for the Department of Medical Microbiology. And I guess coming from the a Department of Cell Biology and Genetics, it was a change of direction. And that's the one thing, I mean, I have hopped from so many different topics, you know, starting out with microbiology and then moving to cell biology and genetics. And now I'm in pharmacology and toxicology. So it's one of the great aspects of a science degree is that once you're taught the basic skills or the basic knowledge, you can use that knowledge and just move into a lot of different directions. So for me, it was a very organic development So I I started and I did a couple of years in the Department of Medical Microbiology. And then they were in the process of building the Conway Institute at the time. And they had offered these Conway fellowships. So it was suggested that I apply for one. I was offered one with Professor Michael Ryan, who's pharmacologist and, and specialized in toxicology in the Department of Pharmacology in UCD. The area really interested me. They didn't have a molecular biologist in the lab and they were trying to develop that further um, and look at transcription levels of genes as well as protein. They had done a lot of work with signaling pathways and his area of interest was in kidney disease and kidney disease development. So it was a move. I I mean, I had the knowledge of of the globins and blood. So it was interesting to move to kidney then obviously because the kidney cleans our blood. So I uh, accepted the position with Michael Ryan and I set up molecular biology techniques in the lab. And it was very much, it was very interesting. So we were looking at kidney development and his particular area was to look at the effect of drugs and chemicals on the kidneys. And it really generated my interest as well and enthusiasm for the research because it hadn't been an area that I had been particularly involved in prior to that. Yeah, so so just on that then, what specifically within the field of kidney disease were you researching? And he was particularly interested in this chemical called cyclosporin, which is immunosuppressant. And uh, many people are given it to prevent rejection, organ rejection. The problem is that it's catch-22 with this drug because it's a really good immunosuppressant. But for some reason, it also causes damage to the kidney. So there was a lot of concern among uh, the clinicians at the time that even though it's really good, long term, it may damage the organ that you've actually received. 
So uh, they were trying to figure out how it was doing this, what was happening, and could they prevent it or mitigate it? So we had, there had been some research at the time looking at this particular uh, component, transforming growth factor beta, TGF beta which is a very important molecule for numerous cellular processes. And um, what we discovered was that cyclosporin also increases this um, component. And we couldn't figure out if it was increasing it, was it beneficial or uh, having a negative effect on the kidney cells. And then around that time, a paper had come out suggesting that TGF-beta could induce changes in the cells. So it was almost like it could recapitulate an embryonic development system. And in this case, it was called EMT or epithelial to mesenchymal transition. And what was happening was that in the developing embryo and the fetus, certain cells need to change from being an epithelial type cell to a mesenchymal type cell because the mesenchymal cells can move. So if you can imagine an embryo, you want to create the brain in the right place and the liver in the right place and the um, kidney in the right place. So they have to be able to move, but epithelial cells can't move. So in uh, development, cells can undergo this change with um, a lot of external factors. And so the mesenchymal cells can move to where the kidney develops and then they convert back to epithelial cells. So they undergo another process called MET or mesenchymal epithelial transition. So it was fascinating because what they discovered was it appeared that cancer cells could do the same thing. So in very aggressive cancers, they found that some of the cancer cells seem to have this ability of changing from an epithelial cell to a mesenchymal cell, and it would allow them to move and create secondary tumors, basically. So we started thinking about it and we thought, well, if TGF-beta is one of these key molecules in this process, and we know that cyclosporin can increase this molecule, is it possible? Possible that cyclosporin was causing the same effect in the kidney cells. So we started this research and discovered that yes, uh, cyclosporin could induce this change, this EMT change. And the problem is, of course, the body was recognizing that these were mutated cells and it was leading the, the organs down to into fibrosis development, so cell death and necrosis and damaging the kidney long term. Since then, it's been discovered that EMT not only affects the kidney, but it can affect a lot of other organs as well. So it's fascinating how a process that's so important in development, in embryo and fetal development, when it's recapitulated in adult cells or adult environments, it, it causes disease, unfortunately. And the same with cancer as well, that we know we need this aggressive proliferation of cells during development and the embryo process, but in adult stages, it's such a dangerous process for us. So then talk to me a little bit, because I know you're quite interested in toxicology as well. So how did that area play into your research? And at what point did you get interested in the whole toxicology field? We were looking at, we were involved in a, a couple of EU grants and they were trying to develop alternatives to animal testis, animal testing for chemical reagents because obviously as part of the requirement for manufacturing and for um, allowing drugs, particularly therapies, to come onto the market, they have to be reviewed 
And the only way we can test to see if they're toxic is to use animal models, unfortunately. So there were many EU projects at the time trying to identify cellular-based or laboratory-based systems that could be used to test these compounds. So we were looking at several different methods to see if any of them could be translated to the lab and that the regulatory bodies would actually accept um, as sufficient evidence for um, toxicity testing. More recently then, uh, we moved to the Conway Institute, fabulous new building um, Mm. around uh, 2002, 2003. So we've been here quite a while now. There was a lot more interaction between disciplines as well, which was brilliant because as you said, you know, what you really miss during the pandemic is those random conversations in corridors where someone will just be chatting about something and you, oh, you think, oh, that's very interesting. I wonder, is it the same in our system? Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, we moved to the Conway anyway and using transcriptomics, metabolomics, proteomics, and trying to amalgamate all of this data, um, looking at different chemical compounds to see if we could identify toxic fingerprints or footprints in the data to determine if a certain cohort of chemicals or different types of chemicals would cause the same effect on the genes and on the proteins and maybe even the metabolites. And that we could use this as a fingerprint then that you would test a certain series of genes or proteins and identify if a chemical had the potential to be toxic to different cell types. So we were focusing on the kidney and it was a great experience. Um, We were involved with several different European labs. So they were all focusing on different areas. Um, So that was very beneficial as well. And it's created great networks as well since then. So I was in the corridor one day and one of my colleagues said to me, Tara, do any of your cells produce cilia? And I was going, I don't really know what cilia are. I've heard of them. <laughs> but uh, he said, because I'm looking for a mammalian cell type that I can use to see different effects in development of this cilia structure. And uh, this person worked on worms, earthworms, so um, C. elegans. And um, so he was looking for some human cells. So we, I said, well, we have cell lines, but we've never looked at this structure. Yeah. Uh, so he recommended this antibody to check. We discovered that our cell line, so it's a kidney cell line and their epithelial cells, uh, normal human epithelial cells, that they just lit up. So they all had these cilia, which are these hair-like structures that basically protrude from the cell. And you have them in the kidney, you have them in the gut and several of the cell types. And they're like a mechanical sensory structure. So in the lungs, for example, they basically try to move the air through the lungs. In the kidney, they move the fluid through the kidney as it's cleaned, basically and then returned to the blood. So we thought, well, that's very interesting. So we gave him some of the cells. And then uh, we thought, well, why don't we check and see what effects some of our chemicals have on the cilia structure? Because it's well known that in cancer, so the, the cilia structure is linked to the maintenance of the phenotype of the cell. So it basically, it's very involved in keeping an epithelial cell as an epithelial cell or a mesenchymal cell as a mesenchymal cell. And we had read a lot of the literature at the time um, which had shown that cancer cells lose the structure and it was thought that it 
it re-entered the cell. So it basically shortened and re-entered the cell and was absorbed back into the cell. And that this allows, uh, this is normal during um, cell division, it allows the cells to proliferate. So it allows them to go through the, uh, the different checkpoints of the cell cycle. So we had seen this in the literature that cancer cells, they basically reabsorb this, these ciliary structures and it allows them to proliferate uh, with uncontrolled proliferation um, and it creates tumours, etc. We had been involved in a big EU grant called Carcinogenomics, uh, where we had identified different groups of carcinogenic compounds. So whether they had direct effects on the DNA or indirect effects on the DNA, so whether they were genotoxic or not. Non-genotoxic. So uh, one of my PhD students, Rob Bradford, decided to have a look to see if he could distinguish between the different types of chemicals and their effects on the cilia structure. And when he discovered that different groups of chemicals had a different effect, so in some of them, the cilia seemed to be reabsorbed back into the cell, but in others, it seemed like it was chopped off the cell. And uh, so that was just a fascinating finding for us. So we thought, well, maybe we could use use this to develop some kind of a high throughput system that if the cilia could be used as a target or a biomarker of toxicity and um, that we could and then we could also see if it's reabsorbed or if it's chopped off the cell. Another PhD student, Michael Higginson, started to develop this process. So it's ongoing, an assay-based system whereby you would grow the cells, treat them with different chemicals, and then look at the immunofluorescent imaging to see if the cilia were there, whether they were present or um, whether they had disappeared, depending on the chemical agent. So that is ongoing. And uh, obviously, these things always take a lot longer than initially anticipated. But it was fascinating to me that it was just a random conversation in a corridor that developed a whole new research area for us, which we hope will eventually lead to, um, you know, a lab-based high-throughput system for toxicity testing. And again, will contribute to reducing the number of animals that we currently used for um, toxicity testing. So that's another area that we're working on as well in the lab. And then I had another PhD student a couple of years ago, who's a pharmacist, Ismail, and he wanted to look at nutraceuticals. He just had this area of interest, in particularly in relation to kidney cancer development and treatment of kidney cancer. And um, thankfully, in many cases with kidney cancer, it's if it's caught early enough, they can remove the um, carcinogenic section of the kidney and um, the patient doesn't need any other interventions. Uh, many of them will also be given chemotherapy as well. But uh, the fact that we also have two kidneys does help. So if one becomes carcinogenic, then obviously uh, they can remove the whole kidney and you can have a normal, healthy life with one kidney, uh, one functioning kidney, which is great. So he was very interested in looking at pharmaceutical or nutraceuticals to see if there were any benefits. Now, a huge issue with a lot of the nutraceuticals that we hear about is their bioavailability. So even though they seem to have beneficial effects, many of the pharmaceutical companies have looked at them and 
they just they're not active enough um, when they go into our system um, so it means that we would have to take buckets and buckets of the stuff so kilograms of it to actually have any benefit but he was very interested in curcumin which is the active agent in turmeric and I'm sure many people have heard of turmeric coffees and lattes and how it's great and it's an anti-inflammatory and antioxidant and we should all be eating turmeric but the huge issue and it's been the same issue for many years is that and many pharmaceutical companies have tried to improve it is its bioavailability so it's just not active enough to have any significant benefits to the treatment of, of cancers in particular. Yeah. Can I ask you just one question what is a nutraceutical sorry that's probably a stupid oh, yeah, Sorry yes so um, basically there are um, agents or vitamins that we can eat or take as a, a nutrient in our diet that would have a clinically benefit on disease development or preventing disease development and it's a huge growth area so at the moment it's between the Food Safety Authority and the Human Products Regulatory Authority and neither one of them really want to uh, take control of it okay. uh, because it's such a huge area and there's an awful lot of uh, research going into it at the moment so it's a bit like are the, the Yakult's versus the Actimel's mm. so Yakult now is scientifically proven that it is beneficial to our gut because they've proven that you get live bacteria in your gut that it can have this benefit uh, whereas the uh, Actimel's and the Danones can't say that they're scientifically proven but they would be a, a type of nutraceutical so uh, so something basically that we can take in our diet that might have uh, benefits and of course all of the, the companies that are involved in producing these want to be able to say science, that it's been scientifically proven but about two years ago they produced a synthetic version of curcumin and it's much better it's much more active and it does appear to have very similar properties to um, the natural compound curcumin so I have a new PhD student uh, Vero who's working on that at the moment and what we have found is that it, it not only it's it's fascinating actually it not only protects normal healthy kidney cells from possibly undergoing cancer if we treat it with them with the chemical it also can revert cancer cells by uh, reducing or removing the carcinogenic ability and uh, protects the kidney cells in that way so it seems to be able to revert kidney cancer and also protect normal kidney cells as well. So it has this double effect or dual role, which is fascinating. So that's just another area of interest that we're and research that we're developing as well. You know, listening to you speak there, it, it's amazing to hear all the different facets of your research. Even just the story of you arriving into UCD and having, you know, not very much experience in, in toxicology and and in pharmacology. And now, you know, to see where the where the research has come is is fascinating and I suppose just for people who mightn't be aware talk to me a little bit about chronic kidney disease I suppose the overview of that field as well absolutely so the with chronic kidney disease yeah it is a growing problem unfortunately and a lot of it's linked to diabetes in individuals because an increase in the amount of sugar in our blood is damaging to the kidneys and the kidneys are fascinating organs um, so they're like the hoover if you like or uh, they have this ability to clean our blood. So your kidneys can filter um, several hundred pints of blood in a 24-hour period. The problem, though, is that because the kidneys are about the size of your fist, 
and we have two. It does mean, though, that if there's something toxic in your blood, then it can reach concentrations of about 40 fold in the kidneys. So something that maybe is less toxic in the blood because it's at a much more diluted level can actually um, cause damage at a higher concentration in the kidneys. And we see this a lot. So particularly with the explosion in the number of um, patients developing diabetes mellitus, um, the increased sugar levels in the blood because their pancreas or for whatever reason, they cannot uh, remove the sugar properly. The, that high concentration of sugar or glucose will damage the kidneys and it seems to activate a lot of signaling pathways. And it does also activate TGF-beta, which is the compound that I mentioned earlier. So that seems to be a common deleterious pathway in kidney disease development. So, and the problem as well, because we have two kidneys and uh, they function quite uh, efficiently, it's only when we see a significant amount of damage in our kidneys that we realize there is a problem. So many patients can lose, it, it will take up to about a loss of uh, greater than 75% of their kidney function before they start to feel tired or lethargic or sometimes what they'll feel is um, their skin is itchy because the toxins are just being deposited under the skin. There are other symptoms, but they're not very obvious ones. So it's not very obvious that you might have some underlying kidney damage. And it's estimated that, you know, about 200,000 people in Ireland are probably borderline uh, chronic kidney disease. And the huge issue for a lot of these chronic diseases is that there are very few treatments available. So there is a lot of research into trying to initially identify them early. So if you can put restrictions in place, for example, if someone has diabetes, um, then in many of these cases, their kidney function is monitored quite closely. But for other diseases, if we can identify any of the damage early, then um, we could keep the or maintain the kidney function for much longer because currently the treatments are transplant, which is the main treatment for chronic kidney disease development. And uh, unfortunately, we're limited by the number of kidneys that are available. I mean, uh, they estimate they're about illegally on the black market. Um, they're, they're sold for about 5,000 euros, but patients who have a lot of money will could spend up to 100,000 for the same kidney. So the person giving the kidney gets paid 5,000 and the person receiving the kidney pays a huge amount more. A lot of work done by the patient groups as well to try and get people to sign their donor cards so they will be willing to give uh, kidneys. Now, the, the live donor kidneys are better. They last for longer, but obviously the cadaveric donors are just as good. So what happens is that patients will go on a waiting list and they can be very lucky or they can be unlucky. In Ireland, unfortunately, they have very strict criteria as well as to whether or not you're eligible to, to get a kidney transplant. So if you have any other underlying disorders, if you have maybe slightly high blood pressure or um, some other issues, then unfortunately, because there's such a backlog of um, patients waiting for a kidney transplant, um, you won't be eligible for the Irish kidney transplant. So we had a, a student in uh, pharmacology there a few years ago 
who had a, a serious infection, bacterial infection as a child. And it was only when she was in her late teens that they discovered that infection had actually caused damage to her kidneys. And that's another problem with the kidneys because they're filtering blood. If there's any kind of immune response or immune mediators, you know, the interleukins, if they're present, then at a high concentration, again, they can damage the kidneys. And it may not be obvious at the early stages, but as the patient um, gets older, then they may experience chronic kidney disease uh, later on. So this particular student, she wasn't eligible for a transplant in Ireland. So she actually went to the UK and it was her brother actually who gave her one of his kidneys and it was very successful. So she came back then to finish her, her degree in pharmacology. So it was a good story. Um, but um, uh, unfortunately, is one of the only treatments today for um, chronic kidney disease. So the idea, a lot of the ideas behind our research is to try and identify early markers of kidney damage. And it is, it's very complicated. You know, we've done a lot of looking at genes and transcriptomics and even metabolites to determine if any of these would be early markers. And it's fascinating, though, bringing it back to the cilia story, these hair-like structures. What we discovered was that in early stage damage using our lab models, it seems that there are certain proteins present in these cilia structures that when um, they're treated with different chemicals, the, the cilia will, I mentioned, it will be cut off the cell, but they actually remain in the in the supernatant in the cells, but that would um, be similar to being excreted in the urine in the kidneys from the kidneys. So these biomarkers then, um, and we found these in patient samples. So in transplant patients uh, where maybe they're starting to reject a kidney organ, we've actually discovered these structures in the urine of these patients. So what happens is the blood is filtered through the kidneys and then all of the nasty stuff is removed and it's excreted in the urine from the kidney. And then all the good stuff is returned in the blood is returned back into circulation. So what we discovered in some of the clinical samples that we have from patients is that these ciliary structures are found in the urine. So the idea is that maybe we can examine these more closely and use these as an early marker of kidney damage or disease so that we can try and maintain kidney function. And to do this, the kidney is also very sensitive to increases in blood pressure. Uh, because it's involved in that process. Um, so it does control our blood pressure. And um, what we found is if we can lower the, the blood pressure in a patient using medications like ACE inhibitors, then we can maintain kidney function for longer. So if you can imagine that all of this blood is flowing through the kidney and if you have an increase in the, in the pressure of that blood, you can imagine that you're increasing the flow through the kidney in these small little organs and you're going to get damage of the kidney. So if we can reduce that, then we can also maintain kidney function. The other key aspect of maintaining kidney function is reducing the amount of salt in our diet because what happens is your blood becomes quite salty 
salty if you're ingesting a huge amount of salt and to the body is amazing, but it can sense that there's too much salt in your blood. So it tries to dilute that because obviously it can have nasty effects on the heart and the brain, etc. So it dilutes that by allowing the kidney to reabsorb more water. So it increases the amount or the volume of blood in our body. Um, and this is bad as well, because if you've got more blood present in the, in the body, you're increasing the blood pressure. Um, and then this can have a negative effect. So there are several uh, interventions that can be looked at to try and maintain kidney function if we know that there is a problem early on. So the whole idea is to try and look for early markers of uh, kidney damage or kidney disease. Because presumably this is irreversible once you get to a certain stage. Yes. Yeah. So once you go past around, um, I mentioned this already, where you've lost about 75% of kidney function, there is nothing that can be done to delay eventual what we call end stage renal disease, which is basically where the the structure, the kidney structure, it's it strangles itself. So you have cell death and necrosis present, obviously the fibrosis and the, the kidneys actually shrink in size and they're just um, completely strangled. So what happens is it's almost like a repair process, an uncontrolled repair process where the body is trying to fix the kidney. And this is where we get the fibrosis from. So we get deposition of proteins like collagens um, and it's like a wound healing. So for example, if you cut your hand and um, the, the wound starts to heal, you usually get a, a raised ridge on the wound. And this is caused by the deposition of proteins to repair that wound so they can seal it off. And uh, some of those proteins include the collagens. And this is what happens in the kidney. It's like the body senses there's a problem or there's a wound in the kidney because it's activated all of these signaling pathways, whether it's a chemical or high glucose in the blood. And uh, the body then tries to fix it by um, uncontrolled wound repair. And it deposits all of these proteins like collagens, uh, which basically just asphyxiate or strangle the tissue. So there is no room for any blood to pass through any longer. Um, and once you hit that point, which is usually around a 75% loss of the kidney structure, then there is nothing to stop patients from going on to what we call end-stage renal disease. So I mentioned this transplant and then the only other therapy is dialysis. So this is where a machine cleans your blood for you, but it's just not as efficient as your kidneys. So over time, your blood is cleaned less well every time you do this. And it's it's a pretty tough way of life. I mean, usually most patients will clean their, they have to do this process at least three times a week. Obviously, it's not an issue during the pandemic, but they've created these holiday camps where people want to go abroad or they want to say they want to go to Cork for a few days on holidays. You can actually go into clinics there and uh, undergo dialysis there rather. So it does give you some life. Mm -hmm. um, and many patients now are doing these overnight systems where they do it at home themselves. So they have these machines hooked up, which will during the night clean their blood for them. Apparently, they're very loud. 
So um, most people have their own room, so they don't share with anyone, but at least it gives some normality to their lives. And many of these patients as well are on on, um, transplant waiting lists. And uh, once they have the the new organ, in the majority of cases, it's successful, which is brilliant. And it does give them a huge uh, lease of life uh, when they do receive the organs. So um, it's great to see. And I know that they are very good in Ireland, uh, but there's still a significant waiting list of organ donors. Um, So it's, it's a difficult one. But if we could identify the damage early, then we could maintain that kidney function so they wouldn't have to use dialysis or they wouldn't have to go on that transplant list and that um, you know we could maintain the kidney function for an awful lot longer during their lifetimes and sorry because it just struck me when you said it earlier is this black market thing is this in, in Ireland as well no no uh, well not that I'm aware of Megan but you know you, you've seen the movies where people wake up and their kidneys are gone or <laughs> no I um, I have read newspaper reports from India and you know the poorer countries where um, they really badly need the money and that they will go to these you know backstreet clinics and uh, they will sell their organs but yeah it's a big business uh, particularly kidneys uh, because we have two I suppose there is a lot of people feel well I don't need both of them and you know I may as well uh, sell one for whatever reason Um, particularly because countries have very strict criteria so if you're a smoker, for example, or, um, you know, you've had difficulties with alcohol, then you're automatically excluded from transplant waiting lists. So if you have the money, uh, then yes, I've heard of, and I'm sure it happens worldwide, but particularly in Canada and the US, I've heard of people paying for black market kidneys. Um, so I'm sure it's a business worldwide, but now, I'm not aware of any in Ireland, thankfully. thankfully. That's crazy, God. Um- But I suppose, Tara, one of the other questions I wanted to ask you was, you know, looking back on your career to date and the achievements and the highs and the lows, what do you love most about what you do? And I know that your role has kind of moved a little bit as well recently, you know, because you're now the Associate Dean of of, uh, Science and there's a lot more teaching to your role. So what do you love most about that and kind of what is the most stressful or frustrating aspect of academia as well? There are many, uh, Megan. I know uh, it's definitely a love-hate relationship, I think, in academia. I love the research. And, and uh, you know, for example, the curcumin story was purely, I had no interest in it. And it was purely because I had a pharmacist who was doing his PhD and he really wanted, and it was unusual for a pharmacist that wanted to look at natural therapies and nutraceuticals. And I thought, really, do you really want to look at that? I mean, I just didn't believe any of it. And uh, and it was only when he started doing some experiments where we could see the effects in, in our kidney cells. I thought, okay, well, okay. So I, I think that's one of the aspects of science is you just never know where it's going to go. And it's that curiosity. So it's the constant curiosity that keeps you interested and intrigued and and just gives you the energy as well to keep going. And I do also love being involved in teaching young scientists. And uh, I do a lot of outreach primary schools and as associate dean now i also go into a lot of secondary schools to sell science and ucd and come to us and do a degree and uh, so i love that aspect of it as i said to you earlier uh, you know my role has changed in the last couple of years as associate dean i now have the responsibility for all of the undergraduate students and all of the graduate taught students in ucd science 
and that that equates to about three and a half thousand students. So uh, thankfully, not all of them need to see me, but I do meet a lot of students. And it's brought a very different perspective to the science program for me that you realize, you know, students will struggle at different stages and you're trying to keep them going uh, and encourage them. So and I've learned a lot more about well-being and trying to mitigate anxiety and depression in students uh, because they're so much more exposed to external anxiety and social media is a huge issue. And I have a a teenage daughter um, who I see and particularly with her friends, there is so much that they're exposed to um, that affects their confidence and uh, which is um, is quite sad. So my role would be to meet with these students if they're struggling or if they have any concerns or issues and we try and assist them either by reduced workloads and we have amazing student advisors and counsellors now on campus who are available to these students as well and I think a lot of students aren't aware that these services exist whereas some students are great at, at um, finding the services and using them. Many Many students just don't, there's almost that fear. I mean, I would have been terrified emailing a lecturer when I was in college. You just didn't do it. Mm. Whereas I think students are much more aware that we're all human and we're normal and we have children and families. So we are, I would like to think that we're more approachable um, as well. But um, it is, it has been a very different role and it has taken me away from the research a little bit, which I do miss. I really do miss. And I do all of the orientation events now for the science students and um, a lot of outreach, open evenings, open days, um, encouraging students to come to UC Science. And actually this year, we had the highest first preference number for any of the UCD programs. So it's nice to know that uh, students really want to come and do our program, mm-hmm. uh, which is good. The one advantage, obviously, of science in UCD, and I shouldn't really be talking about UCD science, but is that they try to keep it very open open. So when you come in in first year, the modules that you choose mean that you can possibly do one of 27 different degrees. So you don't have to decide as soon as you come in because I, like you, I'm sure we're the same. It's very hard to know what you really want to specialize in when you come into first year. So at least this way, you can keep your options open and decide later on. So uh, I'm doing less teaching. Uh, academically, I still do a bit, but not as much as I used to do. I do a lot more kind of outreach work. So it is very different. Um, so I now know what all of the core modules are for stage one science. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it has been uh, a change for me, but it is it's very interesting. And it's nice to think that you might be encouraging the next generation of scientists um, as well. So that's good. You know, it strikes me that there's so many different skills involved here because, you know, you kind of have to be you have to be very good at the research, which is obviously how you started off. And then then you have to be very good at teaching and lecturing and uh, mentoring students. And then in the role that you're in now or like, you know, the, the other aspect of your role now, it's kind of like nearly therapy. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, I feel I need it. <laughs> <laughs> But do you find that, you know, the balance of that is is hard? And when I was kind of doing some research for you in the last few days and I Googled your name and the amount of YouTube videos that, you know, UCD Science that you have put out, especially with the with the lockdown, and I'm sure, you know, lockdown learning has been hard. Do you find it stressful? You know, the, the all the different aspects to the job? 
Yeah, I mean, it has been exhausting, I must say, um, because obviously when everything went online, we did generate a huge amount of content. So the, the first problem was our summer school. So normally we would have students in and um, we would be giving them taster lectures of the different programs. So I must say we have a ma- an amazing outreach manager, um, Orla Donoghue, um, and the assistant manager, Gary Dunn, who were fantastic and generated a lot of these videos and this content for um, our incoming students or students that might be interested in science. Um, and then uh, it was fascinating though because we also had to do, I did the, the virtual conferring ceremonies. So we were really privileged. We got Darrow Breen to, um, who's one of our famous UCD alumni because he did physics in UCD and he sent a congratulatory message um, to the UCD science students. So it's opened up some very unusual avenues and contacts because people are much more willing to, you know, record a, a short snippet or do something online because they don't have to be there in person. But it has taken away that uh, that personal aspect. So definitely my skill set has widened. <laughs> I now know how to do Zoom meetings and webinars and chat functions and polls. And, and uh, what I did find as well when we went to the online teaching teaching in March, I find it very hard teaching to a screen and students don't like to turn on their cameras. Uh, So that can be difficult. I just didn't like pre-recording lectures. I thought it was much more interesting and engaging to do the live virtual online lectures. And I think the students uh, preferred that as well, the virtual class. And it maintained their timetables a little bit as well. Although now we're finding that more students are realizing the advantage of that all of these classes are recorded so they can, you know, look at Netflix for a while and then go and look at their lecture. (laughs) But I must say, and I think my colleagues are the same, the online teaching is so much more exhausting than standing up in a lecture and just talking. I don't know, is it that we feel we need to be more polished or prepared or something, or we need scripts for the the online teaching, whereas uh, it's much more interactive as well. And you get energy from the audience. So they will feed back to you. Whereas in the virtual class, and I, you know, I pleaded with, I have a tutorial group for first years and I pleaded with them to turn on their cameras. And, you know, one of them might turn on their camera. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then the others will say, oh no, I don't have a webcam. <laughs> good excuse. <laughs> yeah, it is a very good excuse. But because I think it's your age group as well that are really suffering. The lack of social engagement and going out and um, I think particularly very detrimental for your age group and also for anxiety and depression. Um, And we're seeing that increasingly as well in the student cohort because they would be that exact ratio of the 18 to 24 year olds who are really finding it difficult and who are very unlikely to experience, you know, significant side effects or problems uh, due to uh, SARS-CoV-2 infections, but are uh, really struggling with lockdown and having to maintain distances. So, yeah, I mean, it's less of an issue, I think, with the secondary school students. I think it's much more of a concern with college age. Yeah, and you don't have that college experience anymore. You know, I remember coming up from the Midlands and into UCD campus and just the feeling of there was a community there and 
just the excitement, I suppose. And I was one of those people who signed up to like every society in the Frenchman's tent. <laughs> I was like going to do the Ellen H. I was going to do everything. Obviously, that did not work out. But, you know, you kind of find your people, you find, you know, within your course, but also within the societies. And I think that's a huge loss as well. I feel for the people kind of starting off because I look back on my days in UCD with, you know, such, oh God, nostalgia and uh, wishing I was back there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when life is simpler, but you didn't appreciate it at the time. That's yeah. the one thing I teach students is you don't know how much time you actually have uh, when you're a student and you just definitely don't appreciate it until you have children. <laughs> <laughs> and so Tara, I suppose one of my last questions, if you weren't a scientist, where do you think your life would have ended up or what career do you think you would have? Wow. God, that's a, yeah, it's a tough one. I don't, I, I, I suspect I might've done some, something in teaching. Um, instead, and and maybe it is. It's it's one of those um, skills that you find with a lot of scientists is that we do like to share knowledge and uh, uh, inform other individuals. So uh, many of us would like the teaching aspect of it, but it wasn't really something that I had thought about doing when I was younger. And now I do love that aspect of it. Trying to uh, encourage enthusiasm in different research areas uh, in science or just generally in science itself and doing science and uh, I must say I love going out to the primary schools because the, the the kids have no filters so they don't care if they're asking what a teenager might perceive to be a stupid question and there's no such thing as a stupid question believe me and they're just so engaged and interested and enthusiastic um, it's lovely to see now it does uh, oh yeah so I, I went out last year and we, we extracted DNA from uh strawberries actually because I think kiwi fruit is the common one but there were so many allergies in the class between <laughs> from kiwi fruits and bananas and um, that I had to try and pick a neutral fruit <laughs> And they love that. It was just this, the fascination that, you know, they could extract DNA uh, from fruit does. And it does help you keep your motivation and your interest in teaching as well. I think when you get that feedback, because, and you know, when you're in a, a lecture and trying to get someone to answer a question or make a comment, just trying to get water from a stone, make it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, it is lovely to see that. Um, and the secondary school students, they're less engaged. They're much more interested in what are the points going to be and what degrees can I do? And uh, if I do this program, uh, you know, what, what jobs will I get from it? Uh, so much more focused questions. You probably get asked some mad questions in the primary school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of any funny ones now. Of course, I won't be able to think of any off the top of my head. I, I did um outreach program. It was with the Trinity Access program last year, and it was Scholars Ireland tutors. So we would design a six week program based on our PhD research. Um, yeah. and I was in the same with the same class for six weeks, and we did a you know the whole module based on immunology. But the questions were ju- you could just never prepare. I just <laughs> these were fifth year students, and like they you know some of the questions were really hard but I remember I was talking about the different defense mechanisms our body have and I was talking about how you know you've got acid in your stomach right and this hand shot up and this guy was like miss I'm just wondering like if you got shot in the stomach and I'm going where is this going if you got shot in the stomach and all your acid leaked out onto the pavement would it would it clean the pavement I was like what? <laughs> 
I know the, the, the random thoughts that, that go to yeah. the, No, it's true. And uh, my uh, my go-to whenever I'm going out to primary school is to bring some dry ice because they love dry ice. And the smoke and, the, uh, and of course, they try and freeze everything possible. I've had erasers and pencils and gloves and you name it. Anything that's on their desk goes into the, the dry ice. And, oh, let's see what will happen here. Um, they're all natural scientists. They really are. Are. Uh, they love to experiment yeah. <laughs> even if it makes a mess but yeah but Tara listen thank you so much again it's been it's been wonderful to talk to you uh, well thank you so much Megan for thinking about me and um, it was lovely um, and well done it's a fantastic podcast and I'll have to go back now and listen to the rest of them and uh, thank you again for the opportunity So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences, who are now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. And if you like this episode, please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. See you next Tuesday.